We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. afternoon and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon and welcome to Authentic Living. You know, somewhere along the way, as we evolved as a species, we developed the concept of worthiness. We decided then that we could be measured as either worthy or unworthy based on our actions, our thoughts, and our emotions. Because we'd made that decision, we devised moral codes to align ourselves with or against as the measuring stick we could use to determine our worthiness or our unworthiness. We needed this measuring stick because we thought that our fortunes in life depended on our worthiness or our unworthiness. And so we've built our entire worlds, our thoughts, our motivations, and our moods around this concept now deeply embedded in the archetypal worlds of the unconscious mind and running large portions of the conscious mind. And most of us would acknowledge that we get the short end of this stick, always ending up more unworthy than worthy. But what if this constant measuring were found to not only be unnecessary, but completely false? I mean, think about it. Where did we get this idea that we should measure our worth? Animals don't measure their worth. Trees don't measure their worth. Vegetation rocks, mountains, we don't know of anything else on this planet that measures its worth except human beings. So why is it that we decided this was necessary? I have a theory that I'd like to propose to you today and ask you to consider. Just consider the possibility that maybe the whole structure that we've built that has turned into sort of what we call a moral code is actually a measuring stick we use to determine our worth, which may not need even to be measured. So one of the ways we've determined, we've come to determine our worth is through rules. But before we go there, we need to develop an understanding of how we came to rules. We didn't come to rules because they, they were, you know, a part and parcel of our basic structure as human beings. We devised these. These were not things that we... We were natural to us. We didn't, uh, a tree doesn't grow up a, into a system of rules. It grows in its natural order. But, but we devised rules. Why did we do this? Well, my theory is that once upon a time, many, 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 many centuries ago, when human beings first inhabited this planet, uh, we, we began to um, see life in terms of life's fortunes. In other words, 
we determined uh, that sometimes good things happen to us and sometimes bad things happen to us. Sometimes our crops came in and sometimes they didn't. Sometimes we had bad weather that destroyed things and sometimes we didn't. Sometimes our ship took sail and sometimes it was becalmed at sea. These, sometimes our enemies came up against us and sometimes we could negotiate the water wells. So, you see, those were the things that happened in our understanding of life, and we were trying to make sense of these things. And one of the ways that we decided that we might be able to make sense of it is to determine that somebody was in charge of our, the distribution of fortunes. Somebody was making decisions about our fortunes, and we were going to have to find that somebody, and we were going to have to devise a plan to uh, connect with that somebody so that we would be able to have fortunate life experiences. And so we determined that we were going to um, make rules. One of the rules became early on that we would sacrifice to the gods, whoever those gods were, and that by our sacrifice, if we gave some food, some portion of our food, whether it be animal or vegetation food, we would give that in sacrifice to the gods that be, and those gods would then smile on us, and we would have good fortune. And when things went well, we assumed that our sacrifice was accepted. And when they didn't, we assumed that our sacrifice was not accepted. And, and from there, we developed certain rules about how the sacrifice ought to be made, so that the sacrifice ought to be made a certain way in order for, us to, for the gods to accept our sacrifice. And then... Because that didn't always work, we decided that, well, maybe between sacrifices we needed to do some things too. And then we developed certain rules about how we should behave between sacrifices so that our, our sacrifices would be acceptable. And over time uh, of this kind of practice and growth and changing the rules along the way to, to change the distribution of our fortunes, we developed certain religions. And we developed those religions that, in ways that said, okay, if, we're, if we do these certain things, we will get good results. Certain numbers of people joined in to that same sort of ethic, that same thought pattern, and those people joined together, and then it became an organized religion. And uh, several people participated in that religion, and more and more people began to participate in that religion. And in large part, uh, this was based on the idea that if we didn't participate in the religion, bad things would happen to us. And then eventually, it became uh, about our mortal souls. Eventually, religion said, well, if you don't uh, take in religion, not only will you might not have bad fortune in life, but after life, you're going to have eternal punishment. So that's an evolution, and I've made that very short and very simplistic for the, to the point of understanding how it is that we measure our worth. We generally measure our worth determinant on these rules that we have devised as a plan to distri distribute our fortunes in a better way so that we will not have bad things happen to us. Uh, ultimately, now, when we think about religion in the traditional sense, we think about it being all about, um, you know, whether or not we're going to have uh, uh, life in heaven after death. And if we live our lives well, according to some structure, some order, and it's different for different religions, then we will get to go to heaven. And if we don't, well, there'll be some kind of punishment, whether it's coming back to a life, another uh, reincarnated life where we are, 
um, having terrible fortune or whether we go into the, the doom and gloom and horror of eternal hell. Either way, we're not getting the goods that we wanted because we didn't live the life that we ought to have. And, and so, our, so these codes, these morals, these, these rules that we've devised uh, have, have come to mean something about our worth. Not only now, as religions evolved, did we determine whether or not our fortunes would be okay, but we began to determine that, well, if our fortunes were good, that must mean we were good. We'd done it right. And that's where we started many centuries before that with, if I sacrifice well, the gods will accept my sacrifice. And if I don't, they won't. And ergo, the rules uh, evolved over time. Now we associate um, these rules with goodness or badness. Uh, A person is good based on whether or not he follows these rules. And a person is bad based on whether or not he does not follow these rules. But these rules were devised out of fear. The fear uh, was that things weren't going to go well and that we might starve to death or things weren't going to go well and our ship would be becalmed at sea and then we would starve to death or things wouldn't go well and our enemies would come and take over our water wells and then we would thirst to death or things wouldn't go well and our enemies would come and take over our villages and then they would kill us and we'd, that we'd die. So it was all based on this fear of dying. Now let's go back a little bit further. I, I uh, talked about this uh, early in the, um, uh, the syndication of this show, a uh, show called Duality, but I'm going to talk about it again a little bit now just to sort of repeat that. I, I would uh, ask if any of you want to, you can certainly go back and listen to that show again, but, but for just for today, for the purposes of what we're trying to talk about today, I want to just sort of repeat that original story. We uh, have come up, uh, somebody or some several buddies along the way came up with a sort of paradigm, uh, a myth about the Garden of Eden. And that Garden of Eden, we uh, were placed uh, in a place where there was wonder and glory and we were fed by the earth without us having to work for it and um, there was abundance everywhere. But in that same garden, there were two options, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, according to tradition, that knowledge of good and evil was a tree that we should not have eaten of, and because we did, we sinned. And uh, our sin has been passed down now to all the generations of planet Earth so that everyone is born into what's called original sin, and everyone, therefore, is cursed to have to decide whether or not they're going to be uh, a part of a religion or not. Now, that's cr- uh, traditional uh, Western motif, but uh, the the metaphor there is richer because in that tree, in that garden where there was filled with abundance, there were two possibilities. One was life, and the other was knowledge. The knowledge is what we chose, and we chose that based upon my theory because that's what we were came here to do. We came here to experience the whole possibility of duality. What we came here to understand that we are not separate from God, from the divine, whatever you call that, uh, from the universe. We are one with all things, all people, and all spirit. And so, uh, but, but in order for us to really be able to put that into form, which is what Earth is made of, planet Earth is all about matter. Before planet Earth, we were formless and void. After the creation of planet Earth in this metaphor, 
we we were no longer formless. We had form. There was form uh, into all things: vegetation, plants, animals, people, uh, you know, rocks, mountains, whatever. Earth itself was form. What what needs to happen in the creative endeavor is that form understand itself as one with formlessness, so that uh, we are now living in uh, form, but one as one with spirit. So uh, in order to do that, we had to walk through the entire journey, a grand experience, as I call it, with duality. So we chose to have the knowledge of duality, good and evil. Duality says God is over there separate from me, or the divine is over there separate from me, and I am a human, and because I'm human, I can't connect with the divine. Duality says that must be because I'm bad and God or the divine is good, and therefore it's called knowledge of good and evil. We were here to obtain that knowledge so that we could come to the end of that knowledge, which is there is no such thing as good and evil. There is no separation between the divine and humanity. Everything is, was, and always will be one. But as we know, in order for us to really know a thing, we have to know its opposite. Just like in order for us to fully know ourselves, we have to also know our shadows. In order for us to fully know oneness, we have to also know the possibility of no oneness. And so we came here to have that experience. And, of course, at the end of that experience is a recognition of oneness. And that will be what, what I refer to as the second coming. We'll come again to our awareness, our fullness of understanding that we are one with the divine. So that is the process of duality. So if that's what we're here to experiment with, then really there is no such thing as good and I'm going to leave you with that thought. We'll be back in just a moment with more. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness research is transforming healthcare. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. 
tired of the government squandering your tax dollars on bailouts and overpaid bureaucrats? On Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Mike Beitler and his guests explain why big government regulations are the problem and innovative businesses and free markets are the solution. Listen to Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And as you just heard, the Authentic Living Show is sponsored by the Institute of Noetic Sciences, dedicated to expanding science beyond conventional paradigms. Founded by Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, IONS is a nonprofit research, education, and membership organization whose mission is supporting individual and collective transformation through consciousness research, educational outreach, and engaging in a global learning community in the realization of human potential. You can join that learning community at www.noetic.org. And what we've been talking about today is the idea of worth. How do we decide? Where did we decide in our historical points of reference that people should measure themselves according to their worth or their unworthiness. And what we were talking about was how we came to this place of of dualistic thinking where we believe that we're separate from the divine and that we have to attain connection with the divine through some kind of work, whether that be prayer or or, um, um, uh, good deeds or uh, uh, working out some bad karma or whatever that is, we've decided that that's how we're going to get ourselves reconnected to that being in the sky somewhere out there where we, we, uh, where we go after we die or, and only after we die because we are separate from that divine uh, entity. So um, in that process, we have, as we said earlier, developed rules, and those rules have been codified over time as to how to make fortunes go well. And then beyond, once we realized we really couldn't change our fortunes that well, that easily, we began to codify them along the terms of good and evil. And so the, the, uh, we now determine a person's worth based on whether or not they are good people or bad people. And we have our own register for what that means. Um, sometimes that's a very personal image of what good is, and sometimes it's based on a moral code. Very often the moral code is a baseline, and it's, it's been archetypally uh, accepted into the unconscious as a, a, a place that is truth. Morals are good and worthy, and they are true, and um, immoral behavior is bad and unworthy, and it's true that if a person is immoral, then they deserve bad consequences. And that's what's ingrained in us. And we not only have that as our sort of background as children, 
um, uh, where we're, we're, we're sort of raised in the idea of goodness or badness, behaving well and not behaving well, has something to do with our worth as individuals because our parents carry this archetypal code and they pass that on to us. That, uh, but we also live it out societally and in our religions and in our uh, corporations and in our gossip and in our everywhere we go. And so our institutions, our governments, our um, our constitutions, our legal systems, our health care, our educational systems are all built around that same concept that duality is true. That duality is true, which means we are not one with the divine. I mean, obviously, look around, hello, how can we be one with the divine when there's so much evil and destruction in the world? I mean, all we have to do right now is look at what Gaddafi's doing in the world, and we know that there is evil in the world. But that's a name we've given it, and it's a name that, that offers us nothing but a category to stick it in. And once we've stuck it in that category, we really don't have to think about it anymore. We don't have to examine uh, the nature of what we call evil and ask for how it came to be what it is. Um, ba- a large part of that is based on a mythology about some, another entity, which is supposed to be the polar opposite of the divine, called Satan or the devil. And, and uh, so we live in, our, in these uh, circumscribed worlds of rules based on this sort of argument between the divine and the devil. Uh, but if we ask ourselves who this guy is, this devil, we, some of the answers that I've found in some very interesting books, Barbara Walker's got a great book called The Women's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets, and she tells us that the word devil derives from the same root word as divinity with the Indo-European Devi, or the goddess and Deva, meaning God, later became, becoming the Persian Deva or devil. The legends tell us that the gods did evil because they were mad, but they also tell us that the devils did good because they'd been pleased. Satan started out as a god, the Egyptian god Seta, the great serpent, considered to be immortal and to be the giver of immortality. Later, he transitioned to the sun god's alter ego, the black sun. He was the spirit of night and of death and of mystery. In Russia, he became the adversary we know him to be in the more traditional Christian motif, and so you see how it evolved over time. This word, Satan, devil, has an interesting history. The Greek word, diabolos, translated as Satan, derived from another Greek word, diabelon, a verb which means to throw across or in front of without regard to where it lands. It also means to accuse. Now, if you take that from a metaphor, we could say we, we've thrown away or thrown across our, 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 in, our essence, we just throw that away without regard to where it lands because, you know, we don't, we don't regard it. Our essence is oneness with the divine. So if we are living in a way that says, I'm not one with the divine, then I guess we could say that that would be similar to what this is talking about. So if you take the word Satan and turn it into a metaphor for throwing out our awareness of our, our consciousness of our own souls, then it has merit, then it has meaning. But if it's just this guy out there who's fighting with God or the divine, and, and, and we can decide which one of those two forces we're going to join with. What is this? I mean, it's a football game? Who's winning here? You know, obviously the devil is. If we see so much evil in the world, well, how much? I mean, it kind of makes God look a little foolish if we think about it. I mean, really, he, he's losing. 
Uh, he's supposed to be the biggest guy, but he's losing. Really? Seriously? Is that the way we think of it? Only a few handfuls of people are going to be able to go to heaven because they're the only ones who, who have uh, joined up with, the, with God. The, other, the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket or going back to another life in reincarnation to have some kind of bad karma. Or what's going on with this? What are we thinking? I wonder, you know, it, get, it makes God the, the powerless guy, and the devil's really got more power. And actually, many of us who live in the highly rigidly moral camps, or maybe even fundamentalistic camps, have, are actually uh, living more in fear of the devil than they are in, in, entranced with the power of the divine. So there's some questions that have to be raised there, and I know we're afraid to talk about these things. We don't want to talk about these things because they have something to do with fear. They bring us back to that old place of, oh, my goodness, you know, this is the very foundation of life we're talking about here. Well, if we don't ask these questions, we're never going to get to answers. And the whole journey of duality is not going to be complete until we get to some real answers, until we get some real knowledge of what good and evil really is and what if good and evil really isn't because we're really just one with the divine. But because we mask that, because we send that away, because we don't allow ourselves to be one with the divine in our actions, our thoughts, and our emotions, that's when we act out in these other ways that we've called evil. That's what we've given it that name, but it's really just unconsciousness. It's just a way of saying, I am not, I am not divine. Um, what you know, the I am. Uh, when Moses asked God to define, give His name, God said, "I am that I am that I am that I am." In other words, I am. I'm just here. There's that's it. I am. I exist. I am beingness itself, and that's what we are. But if we say we're not, then what are we? So a lot of times, what we're just trying to do is, if we're not divine, we're trying to find some kind of identity that says we exist. And sometimes the only way to get that identity in certain homes and certain environments is to be the bad guy. And, you know, we could spend a whole other hour talking about that dynamic. Um, I'm writing about that some in, in my blog on Psychology Today. It's called Traversing the Inner Terrain, if you want to uh, look that up. But the idea is that we've maybe, just maybe, we've got it all wrong. Maybe we've deluded ourselves so thickly that we've gotten ourselves into this hypnotic trance state that says that we are split off from God and believing anything different feels like blasphemy. You know, when, when the people um, were, uh, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were talking to Jesus, they accused him of blaspheming because he said, I am. I am divine. I am beingness. He said he was one of the people on the planet. I don't think he's the only one, but he's one of the people on this planet who's acknowledged that he, yes, indeed, is one with the divine. But when we do that, we think we're blaspheming. We think we're lying and, and saying bad things about the divine. I think that's a very interesting thing. The very thing that is true is the thing that we make the most evil um, on our planet. So, you know, now, uh, not so long ago, to talk about being one with the divine was to have a Messiah complex. You know, they talked about, well, anybody who thinks they're one with the divine, well, they're just crazy. Let's put them in the loony bin and forget about them because we don't want them out there talking. Now, it is true that there are some mental illnesses that can uh, uh, be so manic that they take on for, uh, the form of someone who thinks that they are 
holy in the sense of complete goodness, perfection, and all powerfulness. And of course, uh, that uh, that is a distortion of what I'm talking about with regard to the I am nature. The I am nature is very gentle. The I am nature is very um, confident because it is just itself. It's like the oak tree that grows up to be the oak tree because it's an oak tree. Why does it grow up to be an oak tree? Because it's an oak tree. <laughs> that's that's what it's like to be uh, a one with the divine. It's That's what uh, the divine said to Moses, I am that I am that I am that I am. And uh, so that idea is the oak tree is that it is that it is that it is. The person is that he or she is that he or she is that he or she is. And so if we can if we can um really let our stretch our imaginations just a little bit and begin to encompass the the idea that ultimately form and formlessness will be one matter does not have to be separated from the divine that it actually is a constituent part molecularly uh one with the divine and so it, uh, that ultimately how will be how the body form uh, uh, and the the earth form evolves. Uh, this is my theory that ultimately uh, we will evolve into a unification that is clear to us. We will evolve to conscious awareness of the fact that we that form and formlessness are one. That there is no distinction between the two. Um, that's just really hard for us to wrap our heads around, really hard for us to say, yes, indeed, I, I, I can see how the molecules of my body, the quarks of my body, are, are one with the divine. But uh, more and more people are experimenting with this and finding some very interesting physical phenomenon related to the potential for that uh, truth to be told. So we're going to be back in just a few minutes with more about your worthiness or your unworthiness. Stay tuned. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness research is transforming healthcare. Want to change your life? The New York Open Center can help. We offer hundreds of ongoing classes, workshops, and professional trainings that heal the body, nurture the spirit, and awaken your true potential. Visit opencenter.org to check out our programs in holistic health, self-development, spiritual practices, creative arts, and much more. With our wellness services, bookstore, and cafe, we're an oasis in the heart of the city. And with Open Center Online Learning, you no longer have to be in New York to take classes. Visit opencenter.org today. 
Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And the Authentic Living Show is also sponsored by the New York Open Center, as you've heard, and that center is dedicated to nurturing body, mind, and spirit through holistic learning and world culture. Workshops, classes, and professional trainings, trainings in the arts, holistic health, spiritual inquiry, psychology, and more are offered daily. Faculty this season includes Elizabeth Gilbert, Julia Cameron, Anodia Judith, and Thomas Moore, to name just a few. Visit www.opencenter.org to see all that is available at the Open Center, as well as our newly created online opportunities. And we've been talking today about worthiness or unworthiness and how we've come over the centuries to determine that there is such a thing as a moral code that determines our worth as individuals. We made all this up. And, you know, if you've just now tuned in, what we've talked about in the previous half hour has been all about how we came to this history. So I would encourage you to go back and listen again when the archives are up to that section. But um, we, we made up this stuff. We made it up first based on the distribution of fortunes, second based on our fear that we weren't doing our sacrifices right. Then we added to that that maybe if that wasn't good enough to make our fortunes better, well, maybe we needed to live better in between fortunes, I mean, in, in between sacrifices. Um, and then, you know, that became sort of codified, and we began to, 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 to determine that that's how it ought to be. And as that began to evolve, then several people came to believe that. And as that happened, we organized religions. And as that happened, we began to put it into a moral code and make it into good or bad. And that's how we determine our worth as individuals. We carry around within us this archetypal code that says, this is good and that's bad. And so we have determined certain things, particularly here in, in America and in certain regions of America even more so, we, uh, we believe that uh, it, it is selfish to think about yourself. And people who put themselves first, as we determine it, are, are bad people. They're just really bad people. They're not really as good as other people. They may not be all the way down to evil, but they're not really good either. Um, and it, so we've, we've sort of codified that in our imaginations, and we've said this is what makes a person selfish and this is what doesn't. But when we get right down to it in terms of our personal interactions with people, what makes a person selfish is that they're not doing what we want them to do. <laughs> so then we have to say, who's really selfish here? What I do is throw the whole word out altogether. 
um, uh, uh, like Kierkegaard, who said, rather than uh, uh, determining whether I'm good or I'm evil, he didn't say it just this way, but basically he said, whether deter- instead of determining whether or not I'm, I'm good or I'm evil, I decided to determine my choice is going to be to decide whether or not to throw out the whole concept of good or evil or to, to keep it. So, you know, that, and he was one of our world's greatest philosophers, and so I agree with him in that regard, in that this whole paradigm of good and evil is part of the dualistic trance state we're all in that says we're separate from the divine. So, you know, if I say a person is selfish, what I'm saying is, okay, I've got this codified morality in my head that says only if you do certain things can you prove to me that you're not selfish. And, and most of those things are things that I want you to do. Uh, so, uh, so when we think about ourselves, then we begin to go, oh, my worth is, is somehow tainted now. I'm less worthy because I'm thinking about myself. Um, you know, I don't know uh, about this whole thing of thoughts. Um, I have a, a book coming out September the 30th. I've just learned today that, uh, you're going to be able to go on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles, uh, soon to pre-order that book. It's called The Law of Attraction. Um, the soul's answer to why it is not working and how it can. And in that book, I talk quite a bit about this whole concept of, uh, of how we've determined that the law of attraction somehow is all part and parcel of this whole idea of we can attract what we want by simply thinking about it. We need to think about it really hard and imagine it really well. And in the process, what we're doing is repressing a whole lot of, of stuff that is uh, just builds the shadow more, and once the shadow is built more, then it acts in more unconscious ways, and and so we're we're not able to attract what we want. And that's just a small portion of what the book is all about. It really goes into depth about how um, our our basic sacred texts do not agree with uh, the law of attraction as we sta- as we understand it today. But actually, the law of attraction is a is a law. It's very different. It's not at all what we think it is, and uh, learning to live by the true law of attraction is, in fact, learning to become one with the divine. So, um, so I would encourage you to check that out as well. But um, today what we're trying to talk about is this idea that our worth, our very worth as human beings is based on this thing that we made up. We made up this thing that says we're, we're good or bad based upon this codified thing that we've got in our heads and our imaginations in our archetypes, in our unconscious. And some of us don't even attend church, but we still have that in our unconscious. Um, and so we've determined our own, say, you know, like we said, selfishness, that's bad. And so when I think about myself, that I'm a bad person. Well, if I'm thinking about myself, what I'm really doing is putting energy into myself. Um, what's the problem with that? I, I don't get that. What is the problem with being able to think about myself and understand myself better and come to terms with who I am on a deeper level. Because what I say is, and this is a paradox to most people, is that when we really become more and more authentic, when we start living into who we really are, which requires a lot of thought about yourself, then we, uh, we become less what, what others would call selfish. We become more compassionate. We operate more out of compassion and less out of obligation. You know, that's the way the laws have gotten us. They, the, the laws have taught us to live by duty and obligation. Do the right thing. Forget about how you feel, because feelings are ephemeral. 
They're not to be trusted. They're going to go away. So don't trust those. Live on, on the code. Live on the moralistic code that says, here's what you're obligated to do, and you should do it. And even though you build up truckloads of resentment for doing it, do it anyway. And if you get resentful, well, that just says how unworthy you are. So you can't win this. You can't win this by following the codes, the morals. You've got to go with something deeper. There's got to be something deeper in there that is true. And it's my opinion that that's why Jesus called the Pharisees white-walled sepulchers and, and, you know, said it's not what we eat that, it, that defiles the man, but what comes out of the heart. I think what he was trying to say was that, of course, we don't have the exact interpretation of what he said or know if even he, the, the people who wrote about it wrote it like he really said it. But what we do know is that it's written down there, and if we're going to interpret it to mean anything, it has to mean more than that we follow these laws. So uh, the, the laws are only going to get us to a behavior. They aren't going to, they aren't going to get us to our souls. They, aren't, they, they tell us what we should do. They don't tell us who we are. They don't tell us who, about that inner being that is the I am, that I am, that I am, that I am. They don't tell us about our deepest essence, way down in the bottom line, the bottom line of who we are. They don't tell us about that. They just tell us to behave. And when they're telling us to behave, they're also measuring our worth. That is a sad, not only sad, but dangerous commentary. So that we, we, we can live out a whole lifetime based on shoulds, and what have we gained? What have we got? What have we got? We don't have our souls. What have we got? The only thing that really, truly, absolutely, 100% belongs to me, really me, is me. That's it. Nothing else belongs to me. You don't belong to me. My, my partner doesn't belong to me. My, 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 my children don't belong to me. My house doesn't belong to me. It belongs still to the mortgage company. You know, we, we, we don't own other people outside things. The only thing that we can actually own is ourselves, but so many times we give ourselves away to honor this code, trying desperately to figure out whether or not we're worthy. And that's so dangerous because when we think about worthiness or unworthiness, that's one of the basic ingredients of depression. One of the DSM-4 codes for uh, uh, determining whether or not a person is not a code, the, the uh, determinants of whether or not somebody is, is depressed is that they have this sense of unworthiness. Where did that come from? Well, somewhere along the line, they measured themselves and found themselves wanting. And that measurement was based in large part upon these shoulds, these obligations, these, these things that we ought to be able to do and feel that maybe we can't. Or uh, they're also based on, you know, and we, we bring those all the way down to morals too, these, these shoulds about our careers, how we ought to advance and how we ought to earn money and how we ought to take care of ourselves and take care of the family and don't need anything. And so what does a person feel when they lose their job? What's the first thing they feel? Unworthy. Because we've set that up as a measuring uh, uh, stick that says you're worthy if you've got a job and you're supporting people. You get fired, well, you're just not worthy. You get laid off, well, that's, you know, we have to question your worth too. Um, and in this particular day and time when so many people have been laid off, that whole concept of worthiness has to be questioned. Really, am I unworthy because my company's having financial problems? Seriously? You want me to measure my worth based on that? But we don't think that way. We, we think in terms of, uh-oh, there's a moral code in my head, 
The moral code says I'm supposed to be a productive person. I'm supposed to be out there doing my part in the civilization to bring us all to this place of, you know, where we each one take care of ourselves and nobody's leaning too much on anybody else. Okay, so now I'm unworthy. And all that happened was that I had a crisis. But I'm measuring myself instead of really trying to say, how can I use crisis to get closer to my soul? That's what we're supposed to be doing. There's a supposed to there. We're going to talk some more about this right after the break. Stay tuned for more. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness research is transforming healthcare. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Mom, my tooth fell out. The coach says I can play shortstop. I get to be a deciduous tree. You live for the first in your child's life. But how do you cope with the first that come after your child is diagnosed with cancer? CureSearch.org connects you to the doctors and scientists whose collaborative research has turned childhood cancer from a nearly incurable disease to one with an overall cure rate of 78%. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. 7th Wave Network. listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back for the final segment of the show. And what we've been talking about today is worthiness or unworthiness, how we've come to measure ourselves based upon a moral code that we made up uh, to, to determine our worth. And what we've said in the last segment is that during this time when so many people are being laid off from their jobs and, and uh, things are changing in the financial world, we are very often determining our worth based on an idea that, well, we were supposed to be able to hold on to that job. And if we don't, that means we're doing something wrong. 
very often we, we, we look back at this distribution of fortunes. And I, I want to go back. I was talking a little while ago about Satan. I did not say the thing about the devil. Now, Satan is one word in the Bible. The devil is another word. And in the New Testament, um, there's only 110 references to the devil uh, that I could find. And uh, the word uh, most often used for the uh, devil in the New Testament is diabolos, which originates in the word dio which means to distribute fortunes. So we see we have given we have given our power to distribute fortunes to this devil. He's the bad luck guy. He's the guy that, you know, gives us our bad fortunes and very often in the Old Testament bad fortune is just, is um attributed to God to uh, and by his own admission. So this the whole thing about distribution of fortunes and whether it's good or bad, whether it's coming from the divine or whether it's coming from some entity that we call Satan or the devil, uh, that whole idea is, is up for grabs. Um, because we, you know, the Bible clearly says that God does it, Satan does it. Well, who's doing it? Well, when do they do it? Well, how do we determine when that is? And a lot of people say, well, God's ways are not our ways, and that would be the end of that. We put that in a little box, and we can wipe our hands down and be done with it. But I would question it, because my worth is being measured by it. And if I'm measuring my worth, then what I come to is a sense of unworthiness. Most of us end up on the short end of that stick. We're always going to declare that we're less worthy than worthy. And if, if unworthiness is a part of depression, it, it's also a part of labeling ourselves as bad. And it's also a part of giving ourselves shame. Shame is the lowest emotion we can feel. So... If, if the sense of unworthiness makes me feel ashamed, that's as bad as it gets. And, and people who actually commit suicide do it because they feel so much shame that there's just no way out. Generally speaking, they feel so much shame that there's no way out. Now, there are people who commit suicide based on having a um, um, terminal illness, and I'm not talking about those people, and there are exceptions to the rule I just gave as well. But... But generally speaking, that worthlessness that's in the DSM-4 as one of the features of depression, it ends up as shame. And that shame is, is uh, what people kill themselves over. So now we've developed a moral code by which we can kill ourselves. Is that making sense for you? Because it's really not for me. So that's, that, the whole idea is maybe we just need to throw out the code and, and start thinking in terms of, of who we really are, which is one with the divine. We are soul. We are constituent parts of the divine. The limitations of morality are extant. We can't, uh, we can't continue to live in terms of good and bad forever. Eventually, we've got to come to the place of mystery, that place inside of us that recognizes our own shadow material is not bad, but an energy we suppress. Uh, archetypes that we've put back in the unconscious because we don't know what else to do with it. And guess what? One of the archetypes that's been put back in the unconscious is the fact that we are divine beings. That's one that we just don't want to talk about much. So where is it? It's in the unconscious, along with all the other stuff that we think is bad. So what we're saying here is that if we, if uh, you know, people say, well, you can't throw out the moral cold, the whole world will be you know, totally chaotic. It will be anarchy everywhere. Nobody will have any say-so over anyone. Well, guess what? Nobody has any say-so over anyone now, except that some people believe that other people do. Okay? The ultimate 
reality, the ultimate power on the planet is choice. The ultimate power on the planet is choice. There is no other power on this planet. Because if a police officer comes up to me and says, you know, you ran that stop sign, you know, I have a choice. I'm going to either pay the ticket, go to jail, you know, run. You know, I'm going to do something with it. I've got a choice. Now, probably I'm going to pay the ticket and and be mad at myself for running the stop sign because that means I owe money I don't want to have to pay. But... You know, that, okay, so that's the way the reality works right now, but that doesn't mean that I didn't have a choice, okay? We have a choice about everything, everything, in terms of, of, of our everyday existence. But what we've believed is that somebody else has the power. The interesting terminology, authority figure, is an oxymoron. The authority says, Hmm, authority. It says, yeah, I'm the authority. It's the thing. It's the man. It's the, you know, it's the bottom line. It's how it's got to be. But figure, figure is symbolic. Figure means it's a symbol. So when we have somebody who's an authority figure, they're just a symbol of authority. They're not really an authority. The authority is whether or not we choose to follow that symbol. That's the choice. So, but we get all of our morals mixed up with that, and we go, oh, I can't choose that because that would make me a bad person. If I'm a bad person, I'm unworthy, and I should be ashamed, and now I'm depressed. Uh, but what if, what if we could say, let's don't throw out the moral code. Let's just substitute something else for it. Let's say we could substitute the I am nature of who we actually are for a moral code. Let's say we could... Uh, live in terms of that inner nature, that essential nature of who we are. We would live from the core and be natural beings as divine beings. What if we could do that? Wouldn't that mean that we wouldn't need laws? I mean, isn't that maybe perhaps what Jesus was talking about in the New Testament when he said, you know, love the Lord with all your heart and all your mind and all your body and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself? That was the whole law. What if we lived out of that kind of heartfelt beingness, that essentialness of love? How much more expansive would we be? Instead of living by the limitations that are created for us by morality, we could live out of our love, which is total, total expansive freedom. It gives us the choice to operate not out of obligation and out of have-tos and ought-tos and shoulds, but out of compassion and passion, that's much more real. It, it makes us um, become our essence. I think of it, I often use that symbol of the oak tree and the pine tree because it's, it's so natural. I have oak trees and pine trees in my backyard, and, and uh, I, I like to think about them. They're sort of my friends, and I don't mean that in any kind of crazy way. I just, they're just, it's nice to have them back there. And... Uh, uh, but I, but I think of them as the seed. I think of the acorn as the seed that just pushes itself forward and becomes this enormous tree that's strong and can handle all kinds of winds and turns beautiful colors in the fall and, you know, becomes dormant in the winter and then comes alive again in the spring. That is such a beautiful metaphor for our own humanity. If we can think of our humanity as the natural order of things, that this who we are is what we become.
instead of who we are is this work we have to chisel out and we have to push some stuff away and keep other stuff and 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 make sure we never do the bad stuff and always do the good stuff or if our identity is I'm the bad guy if I'm playing out that role well then I got to push away all the good stuff so nobody'll ever think I'm good cuz that would make me weak you see how we've divided that up and 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 in dividing it up we split ourselves in half along the lines of good and bad so everything that we consider to be acceptable or good or worthy is what we want to express in the external world and everything else goes into the unconscious where it lays there dormant for a little while until it springs forth some other day, a day when we're not paying much attention and don't have our guard up. Um, that's why when a person is drunk or high, they become mean because they've repressed all that mean stuff. And then when they're drunk and all the inhibitions go down, then it all just floods on out. Um, we don't think of it that way. We all, it's just a chemical thing. No, it, it, you know what? Something that's not in there can't come out. You can't you can't do something that's not in you to do. So, you know, we 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 put, split ourselves in halves along these lines. And when I look at that oak tree in my backyard, I, I don't see a split. I don't see it doing something that is untrue for it to do. It just does what it does because it is what it is. And I think if we could come to that, that's the reason I formulated this show, the Authentic Living Show, is so that we could come to this place where we live out of I am that I am that I am that I am, instead of I got to be, I got to change, I got to do, I got to have. Big difference. That's the end of our show for today. But next week we're coming back again and we're going to be talking to Martin Borosin about the one-minute meditation. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.